Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Should central bankers take action on climate change? It's obvious that climate change is going to have an impact on the economy, and so central banks' forecasts need to start thinking about how to take that into account. And the maker of Nutella's plans to spread out its hazelnut supply. Ferrero wants to diversify its supplies, and they want in particular to increase the amount of acreage in Italy itself. Hello. You're listening to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Helen Joyce, The Economist's finance editor. But first, on the 12th of December, Britain will take to the polls to elect its next Prime Minister. Boris Johnson is hoping the Conservatives can break the deadlock in Parliament and secure the majority he needs to realise his vision for Brexit. But that majority is by no means guaranteed, and a hung parliament remains a real possibility. What might all this mean for the future of the British economy? Duncan Weldon is the Britain economics correspondent. Duncan, how have the markets been responding to this election? Well, you know, the headline, you know, the most immediate reaction we've seen is really in the currency market, where sterling is now at about a seven-month high against the dollar. And generally what we've seen is as the polls have came in week by week, As the Conservative lead appears to have been stable, even grown a bit, Sterling has reacted very positively to that. That's kind of surprising because if we go back, I don't know what, a year or a bit less than a year, that's not how the markets looked like they would have been reacting to the prospect of Boris Johnson getting a full term as Prime Minister. Oh, no, absolutely not. I mean, it's only six, seven months ago that people out there in the markets for Boris Johnson as Prime Minister makes no deal more likely. So when Theresa May resigned, Sterling didn't like that. As Boris Johnson established a lead in the Conservative leadership election, Sterling was really not very happy. What has changed, though, is the politics. So Boris Johnson did this deal with the European Union. It hasn't made its way through Parliament. But Boris Johnson is no longer seen by out there in the markets as this no-deal candidate. He's seen there as getting Brexit done, but with a deal. I think what has changed in a way, though, is what markets really have discounted is the idea that Britain might remain in the European Union, which still seemed alive six or eight months ago. There might have been a set of circumstances that led to a second referendum. I think most currency traders would have regarded that as a bullish outcome for sterling. So that upside of remaining is gone, but the real downside risk of a messy no-deal exit also seems to be off the table. And are people weighing Boris Johnson up against the alternative? I presume that's a bit of it. They're looking at um, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the Labour Party, and thinking basically anything but that, please. For Sterling, I mean. I mean, that's what seems to have happened. So if we think over the last couple of years, Sterling's really moved not so much on domestic politics, domestic policies, but on the Brexit outlook. But, you know, as we say, you know, with the upside case of Remain really having faded away, with the real downside risk of no deal gone, Sterling is no longer really moving on Brexit developments. It's moving on traditional UK macro policy. Now, you can make the case that a minority Jeremy Corbyn government would be actually not a bad outcome for Sterling. If Jeremy Corbyn finds himself in number 10, but without a majority, then presumably you get the second referendum. So that remain 
upside is still there. But Jeremy Corbyn would be hamstrung by a lack of majority. He wouldn't be able to do the kind of anti-business things that worries markets. Now, interestingly, a um, week before last, I was speaking to some sell-side macro research firm. And they said they'd put out a note to their clients making their very case, making the case that the best outcome from a currency market point of view would be a minority Jeremy Corbyn government. It's fair to say it didn't go down very well with their clients. They say they've never received such a strong pushback from their clients saying, what are you guys thinking about? That will be a disaster. That's just allowing that Jeremy Corbyn anywhere near the seat of power, basically, is just too high a risk. Yes, that seems to be the view out there in sort of certainly in macro hedge fund land that he gets anywhere near number 10. That's just a negative for Britain. Well, we have a few days to go before this actually happens. Britain votes on Thursday and at 10pm we'll get the first exit polls. What do you think will happen when we get possibly a shock? You know, we might actually hear that surprisingly uh, tactical voting has paid off for people who want to keep Boris Johnson out of number 10. And what will happen if we do look like we're heading towards a hung parliament? Are we going to see an immediate reaction or what? I, I imagine there would be an immediate reaction. So you look at, you know, the closest thing we've got really is sort of what the bookies are saying, what the gambling markets are saying. They're saying between 80 and 85% chance now for Boris Johnson, majority government. That looks to really be in the price. So it's hard to see much initial you know, upside for sterling if we get what's expected, a reasonable conservative majority. So yeah, if we get this shock, and we should bear in mind that 2017's exit poll was a shock, 2015's exit poll was a shock, and indeed 2010's exit poll was a shock. So maybe we shouldn't always be shocked that these things are wrong. But yeah, I think you would see an immediate reaction on the downside to sterling. Of course, it would be at 10 o'clock, fairly thin liquidity, mainly Asian trading, most um, American traders at home. And what we tend to see on these sort of political risk events in the UK is an initial reaction when the news comes out. And then in most cases, a drift back the next morning. You know, the way one FX trader put it to me is, you know, everyone in Europe will get to their desks at 8am and say, what have these crazy kids in Sydney done overnight? And there'll be a bit of pushback against the initial move. And just one more question. In the longer term, what can we expect? I mean, presumably we've got to be doing a bit of scenario planning. We've got to look at, you know, uh, still the possibility of a no-deal Brexit, a hard Brexit, maybe even a second referendum if Jeremy Corbyn does make it into number 10. What do these various paths mean? How are people thinking about them? Yeah, so I mean, th- th- this is the problem with analysis. The problem is you're looking at economic and market outcomes, which are going to depend on a political path. And markets are generally quite bad at working out which political path we're going to go down and get these shocks. And we've got these quite big sort of fat tails. You know, a no-deal Brexit is very bad for the economy, very bad for asset prices, very bad for sterling. A Remain via a second referendum is a very positive economic and market outcome. So we've got these two fat tails you can't completely discount, but we're probably going somewhere in the middle down the path to a negotiated and managed Brexit. Now, what is interesting is, despite all of the positivity around the fact that no deal appears to be off the table, about that Jeremy Corbyn is not going to be in number 10, we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that the deal Boris Johnson has struck with the European Union is in many ways economically a much worse deal for the UK than the one Parliament rejected, which Theresa May um, negotiated. It means a, a harder Brexit. It means Britain outside of the customs union. It means more disruption to trade. You know, Most economic forecasters out there, there's a huge amount of uncertainty about 12 months ahead, 18 months ahead. But there's actually quite a bit of consensus that 10 years down the road, this means we're less integrated with the European economy. Our firms operate with less competitive pressure in a smaller market. They are less productive and the economy is smaller than it otherwise would have been. So, you know, for all the volatility of this week and the next few months, we are at the moment on the path to something which is pretty damaging to the British economy. Thank you for that cheery note to finish on, Duncan. Thank you.
In November, Christine Lagarde took over as head of the European Central Bank. And although her views on interest rates might look similar to her predecessor, Mario Draghi's, she's already calling for one big change. She wants the bank to be greener. Her supporters think it's only right that central bankers, having dealt with the financial crisis, step up to face the next big emergency, climate change. But not everybody agrees. Rachna Shanbog is The Economist's Europe economics correspondent. Hi, Rachna. Hi, Helen. So how does a central bank go green? As you know, central banks are responsible for ensuring price stability, for which they set interest rates, and also many of them are responsible for ensuring financial stability and for supervising banks. Now, where we've seen most action on bringing in climate risk is on the financial stability and the bank supervision side. Particularly some European central banks are asking lenders to make sure that they are aware of what their exposure to climate risk is and how they would manage that risk. And some of them are also conducting stress tests to look at the overall exposure of the financial system to climate risk. And that makes a lot of sense, really. That just goes with their general prudential approach to overseeing the entire financial system. That's right. There's no strict definition of financial stability. It's thinking about the big risks that could affect the financial system. So that's been going on for a little while, but now it seems they're going further. That's right. So now the debate is centering around monetary policy. Christine Lagarde has talked about this. We've had rate setters from the Federal Reserve and the Reserve Bank of Australia also talk about this. It's obvious that climate change is going to have an impact on the economy. And so central banks' models and forecasts need to start thinking about how to take that into account. That's one piece, and I think that's relatively uncontroversial. But the more controversial area when it comes to monetary policy and climate change is thinking about whether central banks should tilt their asset purchases when they do them away from dirty, polluting companies and towards greener bonds. Asset purchases like what we all have been hearing about for the last decade, QE, quantitative easing. Yes, that's right. So the ECB restarted its asset purchases on the 1st of November. And Christine Lagarde has said that the bank should think about the way in which it does those purchases and whether they should have this green tilt or not. I mean, climate change is obviously a huge emergency, maybe not an immediate one. So what's wrong with thinking this way? The trickier part of this is when central banks are being called upon to do more than their job. So, for example, supporters would say that central banks should make it easier and cheaper to invest in green bonds than in brown polluting bonds. But that is not what central banks are mandated to do. And they are unelected technocrats. Some of these decisions are very political because they're going to have to be thinking about how to tax polluting companies, the rate at which a transition towards a, a greener economy happens. And all of these questions seem very political. And it's not like central banks haven't enough to be going on with. I mean, it's not like the world's economy is really going great guns at the moment. That's absolutely right. So we're in the middle of a, a synchronised global slowdown. And if you take the case of uh, the European Central Bank in particular, it's not that they've hit their inflation target. And it's not that rate setters are all in agreement about what needs to be done to ensure inflation reaches its target. So there's plenty of debates on the day job. It's a little difficult to understand why you would then want to use those exact same tools to achieve another objective. There have been a couple of big names, more than just Christine Lagarde associated with this idea. I mean, Mark Carney, the governor of the Bank of England, has also talked a lot about what central bankers can do for greenery. That's right. Mark Carney was probably one of the first 
heads of a big central bank to really talk about this issue. He gave a speech back in 2015 where he talked about the fact that the risks from climate change might not yet be on banks' planning horizons. And there's a risk also that as we transition from a a high carbon to a low carbon economy, there's going to be lots of assets being repriced because they're valueless all of a sudden. And that could result in what he calls a climate Minsky moment, so a financial crisis triggered by this transition. It all gets very muddy here because these people have their own agendas, but they're also representing a central bank as an institution. And then on top of that, you know, governments have their own um, policy settings that they'd like to achieve and they're under pressure from electorates. So it becomes very political. There are lots of different actors and, and some division of labour seems sensible. Is what's going on here that governments and maybe electorates feel that they have failed to act. We've been hearing about the risks from climate change for decades now, and yet global warming continues. We keep pumping more carbon dioxide into the air, whereas central banks have actually managed some extraordinary feats since the financial crisis. Is this a sort of a last resort that we're turning to these technocrats to save us? Absolutely. Things need to be done. And I don't think anybody on either side of the debate on what central banks should be doing would deny that. Everybody knows that we need to take action quickly and this is an emergency. And you're right. I think supporters would say if you look back over the experience of the financial crisis and the the sovereign debt crisis in, in Europe, really central banks saved the day. And if they could do it then, why can't they do it now? And it's clear, I think, that it's good for somebody to be taking action. But you have to weigh that up against the cost to the institution, the cost to central banks of perhaps taking action that goes beyond their remit and what that means for how the central bank is then perceived in future. So it might be that that chips away at the independence of the central bank and its credibility. And I think you have to do a cost-benefit analysis there. And in the first best case, it seems clear to me that governments would take action. But we're obviously not in that first best case. And that means you need to weigh up the costs and the benefits. It sounds that there just is not a magic answer to this. We can't just get some institution to come along and save us. We're going to have to do this the hard way by persuading electorates, persuading governments. Unfortunately, you're right. Thanks, Ratchana. Thanks, Helen. You can read more stories like this in the business and finance sections of The Economist. Try a subscription. Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. 
Michael Gonsalves is the Chief Procurement and Hazelnut Company Officer at Ferrero, responsible for the sourcing of its raw materials. Ferrero is a company of uh, more than 70 years with deep roots in Italy, and it's a family company. And being a family company, we are based in very strong values. And one of these values is really about translating the way we do business. Is it about a long-term approach and a sustainable business? And in this context, what we are doing is developing the cultivation in partnership with some uh, local farmers' associations. We are developing the cultivation of hazelnut uh, in Italy in different regions. In fact, today we already have an extremely high proportion of the hazelnut that we use in Italy coming from Italy. That's already happening. And that's why we have this multi-year program to continue to develop the cultivation of hazelnut into the future. But these plans to create rolling hills of hazel trees are not so popular with the locals who will have to live beside them. John Hooper is The Economist's Italy correspondent. Hello, John. Hi there. John, here we see more trees being planted, more chocolate spread. So why are the locals up in arms? The basis of this is that uh, Ferrero, the company that makes Nutella, uh, wants to diversify its supplies. It's long been very dependent on Turkey, which is the biggest grower of hazelnuts in the world. And they want in particular to increase the amount of acreage uh, used for hazelnut cultivation in Italy itself. They want to add 20,000 hectares. That's 200 square kilometers, a lot. And they want to start planting hazelnuts in, or hazelnut trees, in regions that have not traditionally been ones in which there has been the cultivation of the hazelnut. What do hazelnut trees look like? They start off as rather scruffy little bushes and they grow into something that is between a small tree and a large bush. They're not actually the most attractive of trees and any plantation, of course, is of limited attractiveness because all the trees in this case are in lines. So uh, that is one of the objections that um, campaigners have against this, which is that it makes the countryside more monotonous looking. OK, but beyond nostalgia for the landscape, are the concerns justified? Some local scientists are very concerned because they say that not only do plantations require considerable amounts of uh, pesticides, but also they require or they encourage the use of fertilisers to boost production. And fertilizers can have unintended consequences. Um, And there is a precedent for this. Uh, There is a lake in the northern part of Lazio, the region surrounding Rome, where there has been extensive hazelnut cultivation uh, going back to the 1950s. And that lake now, Lake Vico, has in it a carcinogenic alga which has found its way in the past into the drinking supply and it has necessitated the building of a water treatment plant and has caused a great deal of concern locally.
How does Ferreira respond to general concerns about fertilisers? What they said is that they encourage best practice among the farmers who supply them with hazelnuts. Uh, They, for example, encourage them not to use too much water. And they say that as far as pesticides are concerned, well, hazelnuts require less of them than, for example, grapes or apples. Here's Michael Gonsalves again. Over time, we have developed and we continue to develop strong knowledge and technology in the area of hazelnut. It's important to say that in hazelnut, number one, we are talking about a tree. It is a tree itself, right? Second point is a perennial crop, which means that a hazelnut tree can stand for between 30 and 40 years. And by being a perennial crop, it has very deep roots. So in fact, when you compare a perennial crop with annual crop, the implications in terms of erosion, water efficiency, input efficiency for a perennial crop is much higher. However, we fully understand that this is not enough. So that's why we continue on a daily basis to develop new knowledge, new technology in a way we can continue to minimize the impact that we have in the environment. Now, I can give you another example. We are currently doing a project with the European universities, and this project is about precision technology. So in other words, it's a combination of the usage of drones and robots in the plantation in a way that you can identify the need for nutrients tree by tree. And this means that you can then apply inputs in a much more efficient way. In this case, uh, uh, this project uh, will allow us really to identify the needs tree by tree. And this will help us to be much more efficient in the way of, again, water usage, input usage, etc., etc. So when you talk about inputs, you're talking basically about uh, fertilizers and nutrients for the plants in a way that they can grow and also having a higher uh, productivity. But at the same time, We have to make sure that this is optimised to mitigate the impact on the environment. So Ferrero is working on limiting the environmental impact of its hazelnut supply chain. But for the protesters, that may not be enough. John, is there a sweet resolution in sight? I think that because the contracts have already been made, the campaigners are up against a tough fight uh, because already... The agreements have been struck to set aside these acreages for the hazelnut cultivation. So, yes, it's going to be a difficult nut to crack. No pun intended. Thanks, John. But before you go, let me ask, do you eat Nutella? I'm allergic to chocolate. (gasps) Tragedy. John, thank you very much. Thanks. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. Don't forget to rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Helen Joyce. In London, this is The Economist. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? 
HelloFresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.